Good morning, everybody. I want to uh, invite you guys to turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 7. We're going to be covering a lot of ground this morning, and that's going to make it at least as important. I'm going to go ahead and say even more important than usual that you have a Bible in front of you so that you can track with, with where we're going. Um, if you don't have a copy of the Bible, we are really glad for the chance this morning to give you one. In fact, we have provided them at the center of each aisle. They're here just for you uh, because we want you to own a copy and to, to read it and to not just follow along with what we're going to cover this morning, but perhaps give us a chance to talk to you more about what the Bible teaches us about who we are and who God is and especially what he's done through his son to make peace with him and with one another possible. Uh, we're going to be walking through a lot of ground this morning, covering one of the most familiar passages in all of the book of Exodus, the set of what have been known as the plagues. There's 10 of them. We're going to look at nine of them today and one of them next weekend. While you're turning over there, I want to just go ahead and name the elephant in the room. People didn't like the Super Bowl last week, did they? There was a lot of consternation this past week over the way last weekend's Super Bowl played out, and there are many reasons for that, and Uh, And I think there's a lot of substance behind some of those reasons. But aside from the game itself and how it played out, one of the things that people complained about was that these two teams who were playing in the Super Bowl probably shouldn't have been there in the first place because one of them got in because of a blown pass interference call and the other one got in because of an arbitrary advantage that the overtime rules in the NFL allowed to them at the win of 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 a coin toss that set them up for success. It's one reason I prefer the baseball postseason. In the baseball postseason, it's not a winner-take-all, one game, and, and, and you win it all setup. In the baseball postseason, you have series of games. You've got to beat a team three or four times to show that you're better than them. You can't, a lot can happen in just one game, especially when you're playing with an oblong-shaped, object, a weird, weird object. A lot of things could happen. That ball bounces in a lot of strange ways. The lesser team can easily win. In baseball, not so much. You've got to win a series. And I heard someone this week, I read someone this week saying that, that this is actually the, the, the superiority of the baseball setup, a multi-game championship series. It's a pretty good way of understanding why there's 10 plagues and not just one in the story of Exodus. And what we're going to show this morning is, is, is nine of the 10 plagues that God brings on Egypt for their refusal to allow Israel to go. Why, why 10 why you keep piling on? I mean, if there's anything we've seen so far in the story of Exodus, this is the God who could, have, who could have made it into it all at once. With one fell swoop, it could have been over. He chooses to free his people over time through a series of actions that make the same point over and over and over again. And I think what we're going to see this morning is that we get these nine plagues that we're going to cover this morning so that the same point is unmistakable. So that the victory God wins over the powers of evil can't be explained away through some sort of blown call or or strange bounce. So that it's crystal clear to everybody who's got eyes to see who really is the Lord. One of the things we've been saying every week, I'm going to say it again today, right now, and I'm going to say it a lot through the course of the sermon this morning. One of the things we've been saying is that Exodus is here to help us understand who God is. That for all the other things that are true about this book, for all the other things we learn from it, the main reason for it, the reason for the way it plays out the way that it does, is that we can see and understand God. He's revealing himself to us this morning in stages. And what we're going to see come up, a phrase that we're going to see come up over and over is the phrase, that you may know. I'm going to do this, that you may know. And that you may know that I am the Lord, I'm going to, to, to do this thing. Over and over, we're going to see it. One of the ways that, that, that God in the story describes what he's doing here is as uh, signs and wonders. I'm going to unleash, he says, my wonders and my signs on you. We call them plagues often, the things that he does to Egypt here. But his word is often signs. So what I want to do this morning to, to try to unpack this section of the scriptures is simply ask, what, what are we seeing in these signs? Like, I want to go through the signs themselves and then come back over them and say, what do these signs point to? So, so first, and the, the, the most 
uh, most of our time together this morning is just going to be walking through the nine signs we're going to consider. I just want you to see some, bring to the surface some of the power and beauty in the way this story is told. And then we're going to go back over that same material and ask, what are these signs pointing us to? Now, I mentioned there are nine. I mean, that's give or take. Uh, Before the nine signs we're going to look at this morning, there's a section that we left off with last week where Moses and Aaron come into Pharaoh's court and Moses and Aaron have this staff that God has given them to show his power through. And, And they throw down the staff and it becomes a snake, just like Moses had seen in a kind of prequel version earlier in the book. Well, then the magicians... The sorcerers that Pharaoh has at his court, they're able to come up and do the same thing. They throw their staff down. That, and, and there's, there's now two snakes. And the staff that had been Moses and Aaron's consumes the staff of the magicians and sets up what's going to happen and what we're going to start with this morning. What I want to do is begin reading. I'm going to read for you the first of the signs we're going to consider this morning. This one's going to, I'm going to pick up in verse 14. And then we're going to be moving quick through these signs together. We're not going to be able to read every single verse that we're covering. several chapters worth in length. But I want to bring to the surface some of the things that you need to see in order to, see, in order to recognize and experience the impact of this series of signs that God gives us. I want to begin by just reading the first one in total. I'm going to ask you to stand with me in honor of God's word while I pick up with uh, chapter 7, verse 14, and read through verse 25. As I read this section, you're going to see several elements here that are going to come up in later parables. This is the word of the Lord, verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. So go to Pharaoh in the morning as he's going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, the Lord The God of the Hebrews sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. There's the first major element. Moses, sent by God with a word to give to Pharaoh, comes followed by a warning. You shall say to him, or thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Did you see that? There's your purpose statement. This is what God is doing. He's showing who he is. Behold, the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, because it's full of blood and rotting fish. And the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the vast waters of Egypt, over the rivers, their canals, and their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt, but, but the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they couldn't drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. This is God's word. You can be seated. Several things came up there, friends, that you need to note because they come up again in several different plagues. In fact, one of the things that I didn't notice before doing a lot of background reading leading up to this morning is that, there, that, that these nine signs we're going to look at this morning, this first nine plagues, they actually are three groups of three. That it seems that the author who was, who was creating not just a true story about what happened, but a work of art that, that's beautiful and compelling using the, some of the standards of his own day, was, was intentionally building the story that way. Three repetitions of three signs each. And in each one of these sets of three, we take another step forward in what God is showing us about himself. 
There's a lot of things that I won't even mention that tie these sets of three together, where, where the first and the fourth and the, and the seventh signs are similar to one another in the way that they're described and in, in the words that go back and forth. And the same, same thing for the, the second and the fifth and the eighth and so on. One of the things that I want you to notice, though, in this first set of three, one of the main themes is going to be a contest between God, His power on display through Moses and Aaron, and these magicians that Pharaoh puts up against them to show that there's nothing, that, nothing to what's going on here. Did you notice that contest at the heart of what I just read? Pharaoh is commanded to let the people go. Pharaoh is told this is about worship of God. They belong to him, not to you, in other words. He's given the purpose of the plague that's going to come next. This is so you know who I am, so you know who I'm dealing with. You get the plague itself, just as God said, and then you get these magicians matching staffs again. Somehow, for reasons we're not told here, the magicians are able to pull off some sort of transformation in this water. And because they were able to do it, partly because of that, Pharaoh, he's not, he's not listening to Moses and Aaron. This is no big deal. Just some sort of fancy trick. We can pull that off. That leads directly to the second plague. The first one doesn't have an effect on Pharaoh. The second one will affect him a little bit more. The next plague brings the ick factor. Now, I get it. Some of you, some of you out there like frogs. I realize. My sons do. They collect them whenever they can. They try to transport them from the woods back to our home when they're able to. Some of you like frogs, but I wonder if you would like frogs in the way that these frogs come up out of the Nile into Egypt. Let me read to you this next plague. Go into Pharaoh, Moses is told by the Lord, and say, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs. How's that for an image? That shall come up into your house and not into your terrariums. They will come into your bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servants and your people and into your ovens and into your kneading bowls. The frog shall come up on you and on your people and on all your servants. Now somehow, this is announced, this is done, just as God said. Somehow the magicians are able to uh, come up with their own version of the frog infestation. We aren't told anything about where the power comes from and how it played out. But, but, but for all we're not told about the magicians and their ability to, to, to sort of mimic the frog's plague, one thing that is already becoming clear in this second plague is that they're powerless against what God has done. They may be able to imitate some of it. They may be able to create somehow some swarming frogs of their own. But they can't stop the infestation that God has brought. Pharaoh doesn't turn to them for that. They couldn't, they couldn't do it if he had. Soon enough, Pharaoh is not talking to his magicians. He's not going to them. He comes to Moses to bring this plague to an end. This is the first of several times in these plagues that, that, that Pharaoh asks for relief. Only to change his mind when relief is given. Look at verse 8. Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I'll let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Trust me, I'll do it. Moses says to him, basically, name your time. So that, verse 10, you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. You tell me when you want these to disappear. On your time, they will. So that you know that the timing of this plague, as well as the extent of it, is completely up to him. So Pharaoh picks tomorrow. I don't know why he didn't pick today, but he, he picks tomorrow. Pharaoh picks tomorrow. Moses prays. Verses 13 and 14. The Lord did according to the word of Moses. The frogs died out in the houses, the courtyards, and the fields, and they gathered them together in heaps. Imagine it. And the land stank, you think? But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, again, once there was relief, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. It's the first of several times where Pharaoh says, when this stops, I'll let your people go, and then backs out. 
Now, this seems like it would be a good place to stop. I mean, clearly what's going on here is more than what the occult forces Pharaoh's got at his disposal can match. That's why Pharaoh asked Moses for relief and not his magicians. And he's already said that he would let them go after the frogs are destroyed. But still, in verse 15, Pharaoh hardens his heart. Pharaoh backs out, and so we go on. In the final sign in this first set of three, the, the contest, such as it was, between God through Moses and Pharaoh's sorcerers comes to an end. This multi-game series has led to a winner. The third sign puts an end to any notion that we have some sort of clever magic or dark arts going on. Look at verse 17. The promise here is that if they don't, if, if, is, that, is that, that, that God is going to now bring on Pharaoh an infestation of what are, what are known as gnats. We don't know for sure if that's like the little gnats that we associate with a hot summer day, like buzzing around our ears, or mosquitoes could be another, another translation. Uh, perhaps even lice. The point is, lots of them on you, bothering you, annoying you. So this is another annoyance. Verse 17, they did what God had said. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth, and there were gnats on man and beast. Imagine that. The dust turns to gnats. There's a lot of dust. That's a lot of gnats. And all the dust of the earth, we're told, became gnats in all the land of Egypt. And so come our magicians. They've got their staffs. They've got whatever it is they've been using. They tried it by their secret arts, verse 18, to produce gnats, but they couldn't. There were gnats on man and beast. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. They're done trying to keep up. But still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. The next set of three signs... In this one, the magicians fall off the scene. He, we're done with them. He's moved on. They're now at the mercy of what's coming, just like anything, anybody and anything else. And by the end of this series, the next time the magicians are mentioned, the only thing they're, they're mentioned, the only thing that's mentioned about them is that the boils were so painful that are going to be on their bodies that they couldn't even stand in the presence of, of Moses. It's the only time they come up. And this set, so if the first one was about, if the first set of three, if one of the things that we're supposed to notice there that's unique about that set of three is that, is that God is showing that, that the most powerful forces Pharaoh could, could bring to his aid were no match for what God is doing here, the, the emphasis, the uniqueness of the second set of three is that God is affecting Egypt through these plagues and not Israel. The thing that's mentioned over and over through these next set of plagues is that Israel is protected so that you may know that I am the Lord. And this set, alongside several things that repeat from earlier plagues, I mean, there's a lot of similar features. There's the command to let the people go. There's the warning of what's going to happen. There's the fickle pleading and reneging and the hardening heart of Pharaoh. All of that's there here in this set as well. But alongside it is this difference about who it is that's being affected and who isn't. Let me show you. The fourth sign is the sign of the flies. It begins with a really long setup, just like the first. I won't read the whole thing. The Lord tells Moses to go to Pharaoh in the morning, just like he did in that first sign. He tells him to stand beside the water, just like he did before when Pharaoh comes out to the water. And he tells him to let the people go so that they can serve him. He warns him that this time it's going to be flies that swarm over people and livestock and their houses and everywhere. No one's going to be able to escape. By now, he should believe that this is going to happen. He should have seen enough. But, but verse 22. On that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there. Why? that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. My people will be preserved that you may know that I'm the Lord and that's exactly what he does. Pharaoh pleads for relief when the flies come home. He says, you can go sacrifice, just stay close to home. Don't go out of the land, stay in the land. Moses says, nope, not gonna happen. Pharaoh says, okay, all right, just make it stop. Do whatever you have to do. Verse 29, then Moses said, 
Behold, I'm going out from you, and I will plead with the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh, his servants, from his people tomorrow. Only let not Pharaoh cheat again by not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord, and the Lord did as Moses asked and removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh. It's all under his command. These flies come and go at his will. Not one remained, verse 31 says, but... Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. The fifth plague hits harder. This time it's the livestock and this time it's not an annoyance like the mosquitoes or the the, the gnats had been or the flies had been. This time, this time death comes with this plague. Death to livestock that were central to to the economy of this land a key object of wealth. The wealthy had their wealth in their livestock in many cases. That's why this plague is described in in chapter 9, verse 3, by the Lord as a very severe plague. But, but, verse 4, the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. And the Lord set a time saying, tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. And the next day, the Lord did this thing, just as he said. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. I like verse 7. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead. You can just imagine him thinking, wait, what? Really? Seriously? No, 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 it can't be. You go, go, go find out what's going on with the, with the, with the, the people of Israel and their, and their livestock. Surely, surely they've got at least one diseased cow. Nothing. But still, he didn't let them go. And so in the final set, or final plague of this second set, from the livestock of the people of Egypt, this plague moves to the bodies of the Egyptians themselves. The Lord commands Moses to take soot from a kiln, to throw that soot up into the air in the sight of Pharaoh. This is uh, chapter 9, verse 8. And it shall become fine dust over all the land of Egypt and become boils breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. And that's exactly what they do. They take the dust, they throw it up into the air, and there, in their presence, as they watch, boils form on their bodies, the bodies of the Egyptians and on their animals. And the magicians, verse 11, they couldn't stand before Moses because of the boils. For the boils came upon the Egyptian or the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. But still, the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh and he didn't listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. And that brings us to the third set of three. Now, so far, hopefully what you're seeing is one of those, uh, one of those uh, kind of cinch knots, you know, where you tie a cinch knot and almost the, the more you struggle, the more that's pulled against, the tighter that it gets and it only goes in one direction. That's kind of the way I see these first two sets of three, that, that it starts out with annoyance and it's sort of out here, but then as it draws closer, it starts to affect, oh, the magicians now are being humbled. And as it gets closer, it's, it's, it's the wealth, the core wealth of the, of the land is, is, is being humbled and the magicians are, are, are now off the scene. And as Pharaoh continues to struggle, it gets tighter and tighter until even in this, in this last set of three, it's almost as if the whole creation of their land is, is, is becoming undone. One of the key features that I noticed in, in, in reading for this set of plagues is how the last three that we're going to cover this morning almost look like the reversal of the creation that we're, that's described in Genesis. In Genesis, God is described as bringing order out of chaos, that he, that he sets apart a land that is good and fills it with good things. And, and in these in these plagues, these last ones, to show who has power over the earth, he rolls that back and brings destruction. It's a return, as far as the Egyptian land is concerned, a return to chaos and emptiness. And the purpose of this set and of all the plagues, all the signs, is still to show once and for all who is God. The first of this final set, which is the seventh plague overall, is the hail. 
like the other sets, especially you know, like, like Plague Number 1, Plague Number 4, this one's really long. It's got a lot of setup. It's got a lot of description. It repeats some of the same things we read when we read the first plague in total. It's got Pharaoh being confronted in the morning. It's got a repeat of the command to let my people go so they can worship me. It's got a warning of what will come. It's, it sets a time when that's going to come. And in this case, the, 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 when, the, when the hail is announced, there's even a kind of merciful warning that you need to bring your people and your, and your animals inside. Get them under shelter. Because when this hail comes, anyone who's not under shelter, they will be killed. It's that serious. Some people believe them. Some do get, get everything indoors. Some don't believe him. And then God did exactly what he said he would do. Verse 23 of chapter 9. Then Moses stretched out his staff toward heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail, and fire ran down to the earth. And the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very heavy hail, such as had never been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hail struck down everything that was in the field in all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. Only, only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. Pharaoh responds to this with pleading. In fact, the strongest pleading that he's, that he's offered yet. Even the sense of regret, it kind of seems like maybe he's repenting. Like he's ready to obey. But as soon as Moses prays, as soon as God ends the storm in response to Moses' prayer, as soon as Pharaoh sees relief, well, he backs out once again. Verse 34, When Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. And so, plague number eight. Moses goes back into Pharaoh, bringing the word of the Lord, a word of warning about locusts that will come and consume whatever the hail didn't destroy. Look at verses four to six of chapter 10. If you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your country and they shall cover the face of the land so that no one can see the land and they shall eat what is left to you after the hail and they shall eat every tree of yours that grows in the field and they shall fill your houses and the houses of all your servants and of all the Egyptians as neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen from the day they came on the earth to this day. Then he turned and went out from Pharaoh. At this point, Pharaoh's servants, the, the, the people of power who have his ear, they're in his ear, big time. At this point, those people are trying to talk him down. They're trying to say, look, look we got to get rid of this guy. Haven't you seen enough? We're ruined. Egypt is destroyed, they tell him, and it's working. Once again, he seems ready to leave. But this time, he's got conditions. He calls Moses and Aaron in. He says, okay, you can go. But, 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 but let's get specific here. Which ones are to go, he says to them. All of us, in effect, Moses says. And Pharaoh says, yeah, right. I'm not letting all of you go. No, no, the men. Just go with the men. Leave your women and your children and your livestock behind. The men can go out. They can worship. Now get out of my presence. Pharaoh thinks that it's settled now they're driven out of Pharaoh's presence verse 11 says and he thinks okay the men are going to go they're going to do their thing they're going to come back Moses has no more words for Pharaoh at this point the Lord says to Moses go ahead do it stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts so that they might come upon the land of Egypt and eat every plant in the land all that the hail has left so Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt and the Lord brought an east wind upon the land all that day and all that night and when it was morning the east wind had brought the locusts the locusts came up over all the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt such a dense swarm of locusts as had never been before nor ever will be again 
It's disgusting, isn't it? You know what a locust, is, a locust does? They just they swarm and they eat. And they eat until there's nothing left to eat. And look at how they're described. They covered the face of the whole land so that the land was darkened. And they ate all the plants in the land and all the fruit of the trees and all that the hail had left. Not a green thing remained. Neither tree nor plant of the field through all the land of Egypt. The God who made heaven and earth, who filled it with good things, who populated it with plants and fruits and delicious things to eat and beautiful things to look at, that God is rolling it back by the same power that put it there in the first place so that they might know that he is the Lord. Pharaoh has a change of heart, as we've come to expect. He calls Moses and Aaron back in. He asks them to pray to make it stop, and they do. God hears Moses' prayers and drives the locusts into the sea. But once again, God hardens the heart that Pharaoh has hardened. He's got more to show about himself. That leads us to the final plague for this morning, the plague of darkness. Complete darkness is the final sign in this third set. One thing that's helpful to know here, I think, even though it's not said on the surface of the text, one thing that's really helpful to know is that one of the main deities that the Egyptians worshipped was the sun god. They called him Ra. If you've been to uh, some great museums that have a lot of antiquities, artifacts from the ancient world, and you've seen in a section of of that museum that that focuses on Egypt, you have no doubt seen pictures and sculptures and and jewelry that that has Ra depicted. He was their, their main god. He was associated with the sun. And here, the god who began his sequence of signs by touching their beloved Nile was the key to their life and their power ends this series of signs by touching the God that they trusted above all. Look at how it's set up. Verse 21 of chapter 10. The Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. You know what he means, don't you? There's a kind of psychological effect that comes with deep darkness. And it's, one, it's one reason that seasonal affective disorder is a big deal. Like extra darkness affects you. Now, have you ever experienced complete darkness? Have you ever been in a cave, you know, on a tour, or just because you happened to be in the right place at the right time and found one for yourself? Ask me, ask me after. I can, I can point you in the right direction. Have you ever been in, in a cave, and you're wandering in it, and you've got flashlights or headlamps or whatever, and you turn them off? Have you ever experienced that level of darkness? On the Mammoth Cave tour, they tell you to put your hand in front of your face. You do that, you can't see a thing. Your, your hand is right here, an inch away, nothing. Much less seeing other people that are around you. Much less knowing which way is up. I mean that literally. It is disorienting, this kind of darkness. It's a darkness that can be felt so that when it comes... They did not see one another, verse 23, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Pharaoh's reaction to this sign sets up the confrontation we're going to look at next week. Once again, he wants to bargain. He says, go, take all your people this time. Just leave your animals, okay? Just leave your animals behind, your wealth as security it's kind of like leaving your driver's license when you rent something. You know, some places you go and you're, you know, rent something for the day, a boat or, or you know, a, a kayak or something on a lake. You have to leave something behind to make sure you come back with it. That's what he's essentially saying. But Moses is not having it because the whole purpose of their getting away was not a vacation. The purpose of their getting away was so that they might serve the one true Lord. Pharaoh is trying to keep a toehold of lordship over their lives by keeping their animals behind. They're not having it because they're going to need those animals, Moses tells them. We've got worship to do. We have to make sacrifices to the one true God. We don't know yet what we're going to need, but we're going to need it all. None of it belongs to you. But, verse 27, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to them, get away from me. Take care never to see my face again. For on the day you see my face, you shall die. 
Moses said, As you say, I will not see your face again. And so it ends, this first set of nine, in darkness. There's a lot more to this story. So much more that we decided to spend a separate week on the final sign next week. But before we do that, I think we need to stop here and we need to take stock of what we've seen. God has described these things that he's doing here as signs. What are these signs pointing to? What are we supposed to learn from them? Where are they pointing us? In the last few minutes that I've got here, I want to show you three things they point us to. Where are these signs pointing us? First, they point us toward God for worship. This, friends, is the primary purpose of the plagues. These plagues are not supposed to be reduced to some sort of moral lessons to learn from each individual sign. Like there's something unique about each one that we're supposed to mine out. They're not supposed to be read with a lot of symbolism or allegory. In fact, when we start boiling them down to look for what's unique about each one of them and looking for moral lessons to take from each one of them rather than taking them on the whole like we've tried to do today, when we do that, what we risk is missing the forest for the trees. What, what these signs are meant to do is to wash over us wave after wave after wave, making the same point to us that they were meant to make to Pharaoh one by one, over and over until we get it. What's the point? Kids, I want to talk directly to you guys now for just a sec. Raise your hands real high if you guys have been in our catechism times on Sunday morning before. At any time, even if you're way too old for it now. All right, I'm seeing quite a few hands out there. I'm going to get you guys to help me make this next point. What, what God has been telling us in these signs reminds me a lot of what, a, what many of you have learned in your catechism times with Miss Sharon or Miss Lee or Miss Laura and here's your chance to talk in church. I'm going to ask you a question. I want you to answer it. Is there more than one true God? No! Come on, kids. Everybody can help me. Is there more than one true God? No! Is there more than one true God? No! There is only one true God. That's the main point of this whole series of plagues. Remember Pharaoh's question at the beginning, last week at the very beginning, and what, what we, the question we hung over the whole story last week was Pharaoh's response to Moses. Moses comes in and says, they're God's people, let them go. They need to serve him, not you. And Pharaoh says, who is the Lord? I don't know the Lord and I'm not letting them go. I want you to think about that question hanging over every single sign we've just seen. Who is the Lord? Chapter 7, verse 17. By this you shall know that I am the Lord. I'm going to hit your Nile River. Chapter 8, verse 10. Tomorrow I will take the frogs away so that you may know there is no one like the Lord our God. I stop these plagues on my time. Chapter 8, verse 22. That you may know that I am in the Lord in the midst of the earth. I'm only going to hit Egypt with my plagues. I'm not going to hit Israel. Chapter 9, verse 21-9. There will be no more hail, so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. Chapter 10, verse 2. You're going to tell your son and your grandson what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. In fact, in chapter 9, verse 16, the whole purpose of the plagues is given to us in that one verse. For this purpose, God says to Pharaoh, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Of course, this God, the God who can bring pain and punishment like this, is a God who could have done, his, done what he wanted to do in one fell swoop. But this has never been simply about freeing Israel. That's going to happen soon enough. We're going to look at it next week. But he wants more than just Israel's freedom. He's showing Israel... And he's showing Egypt, and he's showing me and you something crucial about who he is. What he's doing through these plagues is revealing his name. What sort of God we're dealing with. What is he showing us about himself? Well, one commentator described the fact that 
that, that in, in, in God's working, even just what we see in the Old Testament, he uses a lot of different things to help his people. Sometimes he uses foreign armies who come in and, and, just, and punish his people. He's, he, he's used uh, individuals. He's used armies. He's used all sorts of things. But here, he doesn't use anything like that. Here, he chooses to intervene directly. He chooses to use creation forces. In other words, he chooses, as one person put it, to fight with weapons nobody but he has at his disposal and that only he can command. He acts in the way he acts here so that there's no way other to, no other way to explain what's going on and that the God who made this world is still ruling over it. Now, friends, if, if you're new to the Bible and to what Christians believe and all this, this talk of interventions in the natural world sounds like it belongs in a fantasy novel series, I, I just want to say up front that we agree with you that this isn't how the world works. I mean, there is nothing about our experience that tells us to expect signs like these. We don't think of these sorts of things happening all the time. I'm, by we, I mean Christians who believe the Bible. And I think I can speak for all of us here when I say, I've never seen anything like this. But, but you should know, too, something else you should know, is that the crazy, supernatural, out of all semblance of normal nature of these things is precisely the point. These signs are meant to sound otherworldly crazy because what these signs are doing is showing us that this world, which is so ordered, so predictable in our experience of it, so much so that that the scientists among you are able to have remarkable success in your work because you can predict based on what we know, how things normally work. This world that's so ordered in our experience of it is ordered only by the pleasure of the God who made it and continues to exercise complete control over it. So let me offer you a friendly suggestion. If, if you find yourself this morning tempted to dismiss all of this because it sounds crazy, be careful you don't dismiss these stories because they sound supernatural. When the supernatural nature of them is precisely the point. You're begging the question. Don't say, I know this kind of God is impossible because interventions like this are impossible. That these interventions should be impossible is precisely how he proves he is who he claims to be. Let me, let me give you an example. I don't know how well this will work, but I'm going to go for it anyway. I have, I'm, not, I'm not among the lucky among you who have been able to see the Grand Canyon with my own eyes. But I've had that experience described many times. I mean, I've seen video footage of it. And I think there's a lot about us. If, you, if you've never seen it, never heard about it. Let's say you were, you were someone who was traveling there for the first time and no one ever told you what to expect. If someone had told you that there could be a hole in the ground that big, that deep, that wide, you would say, that's impossible. There are no holes that big. I've been a lot of places. I've traveled around the world. I've never seen a hole like that. Those holes don't exist. It shouldn't be possible. And I would say, you're right. It shouldn't be possible. That's why when you come up on the edge of it and you look down into it, you're stunned. And you have no proper response to that other than awe. Even a kind of worship. It's precisely because it shouldn't be possible that it's amazing and even inspiring worship. The first and most important takeaway from all these signs is that the Lord behind these signs is the one and only true God and we must worship him in all of our lives. He deserves it. He's worthy of it. These signs are pointing us in another direction. These signs are also pointing us toward God for justice. In every case, they're pointing us toward him. They're telling us about him. They point us to him first for worship. There is only one true God But the second thing they point us to is to the Lord God for justice. This is a God above all gods who has made it his purpose to execute justice on earth. He will vindicate those who are oppressed. He will crush those who oppress them. That's the point behind the fact that he has raised up Pharaoh to put Pharaoh down so that he can send this message out to all the world. You put yourself in my place. 
And treat these precious people as if they're yours to do with as you will. And you will be exposed. Friends, we've been talking about Exodus as the way God announces himself to the world. This is who I am, he's telling us. This is what I'm about. And of course, a a central, beautiful part of what he's showing us is that he is a God who redeems the weak, the broken, those who have no other option but to cry out to him. The end of chapter 2 is a beautiful description of that. Israel groans and their groaning comes up to the Lord and he hears and he sees and he knows and he's going to do something. All of us, I think, can connect with that. A great and merciful Redeemer who hears us. I know what it is to feel weak and needy and to long for someone who hears and knows me. But there is another side to his role as Redeemer that always goes hand in hand. Here's how one writer put it, an Old Testament scholar named Christopher Wright. The same acts of deliverance that show Israel Yahweh is a God of grace and redemption also show that Yahweh is a God of just judgment. Here's what Wright says. Those acts of deliverance for Israel meant judgment on their oppressors. There's no other way. These enemies, too, would come to know God. But they would know him as the God of justice who could not be resisted with impunity. Friends, what we just read this morning, this is not a light-hearted kid's story. It's not funny or amusing spells like something from Harry Potter. These plagues bring immense suffering. They bring death. And they are part of the gospel. Part of the good news that God is sending out to the world here is that he will win a victory over oppression, that it is necessary to the liberation he wants to bring, and that he will put right all claims to his throne that Pharaoh here is just representing. I think that this, this part of the gospel can be harder for some of us to connect with. The idea that God would judge, that he would punish like this, can even be alienating. It can bring out a kind of ick factor in our hearts, something like what those frogs do to us. And one of the things I'm learning about myself, and maybe this will be true about you, I just want you to give, give you this to chew on. And one of the things I'm learning about myself is that I shrink back when I see God in judgment in a way that I, that I don't when I hear these promises that he hears us when we cry out to him, partly because I have lived a life of remarkable privilege, almost unheard of in the history of the world. I have a hard time connecting with this promise of justice and judgment on oppressors, partly because I've not tasted this kind of oppression myself. It's hard for me, in other words, to empathize with Israel who longs not just to be set free, but to see their enemies and God's crushed. Our allergy to the judgment of God, friends, can be a posture of privilege. And what I, what I want most from him is the peace and belonging and fatherly care that his word speaks to me. Then his wrath is going to seem beneath him and disconnected from what I need. It'll do nothing for me. But for enslaved Africans 200 years ago, for, for those who are caught even now in human trafficking that they have little hope to ever escape, for those who know what it is to be under the thumb of someone they can't resist, well, this text speaks at a different level, and all of us need to feel it. It sets up the last place that these signs point us. They point us to God for justice, and they point us to God, finally, for mercy. Because, friends, one thing we have to acknowledge is that what's in Pharaoh's heart is in our hearts too. If there's only one true God, then all that matters every single day with every thought, with every action, with every attitude, the only thing that matters is pleasing this God. What pleases him? What has he told me is good? Who has he called me to be? And if this is how God relates to those who take his place, who impose their own ways over his, if, if, if as the psalmist puts it, he should mark iniquities, then who can stand? We might take comfort we haven't enslaved anyone, but I have used people. There's no question about that. And in some cases, I've used the people most precious to me who've loved me at the greatest cost to themselves. I've even wished to submit God to my own will. Pharaoh isn't guilty of anything that I haven't 
at least experienced at the level of my heart. And one thing I want you to know coming out of these, these sets of, of, of signs, one thing to notice here as we close is that the on, only the God who brings them can bring relief from them. We might, we might be tempted, as Pharaoh did, to, to, to look to other powers to sort of match what God is doing or escape something of what he's promised. At best, those other sources we look to are just going to bring another judgment of their own upon us. There is no one else who can bring relief from God's judgment than the God who sends it. Anything else is just going to throw you back on your own resources and leave you with more shame to carry. Romans 3 tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Do you see that? The only one who can save us from the judgment that that we deserve right alongside Pharaoh is the same God who has promised to bring that judgment. The very God against we have sinned, against whom we've sinned, the one whose glory we have fallen short of is one who promises to justify us freely by his grace. All you have to do to experience that, friends, is to repent and to believe in him. I see myself in the question asked of Pharaoh in chapter 10, verse 3. How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Can you see yourself there? This morning is an opportunity for you and for me to humble ourselves before what we know we deserve from this one who alone is Lord and then to receive with joy, not because we deserve it, but because he's merciful, the forgiveness that only this God can give us. I want to pray now that you'll do it and that I will. Father, we... We thank you that you've spoken to us even when it's hard to see what you've said, even, though, even when it's hard to accept what it would mean for us. And I pray that this morning we are all experiencing both the weight of the promise of redemption, the promise that all evil will be set to right, that all injustice will be crushed and replaced by perfect righteousness, and also to know that we ourselves are guilty of sinning against you and putting ourselves in your place. We know we have no hope beyond the hope you've offered us. I pray that this morning we would humble ourselves before you, acknowledge the truth, and trust in you to forgive us. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen.